Hey, folks. Pattern is a disability insurance company, and they know that you want to be confident and in control of your finances. In order to do that, you need to buy disability insurance. Pattern understands the problem is that researching insurance is complicated and time-consuming, which can make you feel overwhelmed and unsure of who to trust. Pattern knows that your time is valuable, and they believe that doctors have more important things to do than worry about insurance. That's why thousands of doctors have trusted Pattern to help them understand the insurance they're buying. Here's how they do it. You go in, you request your quotes, you compare your options, and you buy risk-free. So request your quotes today at PatternLife.com. That's P-A-T-T-E-R-N-L-I-F-E.com. So you can stop wasting time and feeling overwhelmed and instead save money and spend time on the things you love, being confident your family and income are protected. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm back with part two of our non-opioid adjuncts pair of episodes. I am thrilled to have back with me Drs. Grant and Bickett. If you haven't listened to part one, which was posted just a few days ago, make sure you listen to that, and this takes off where we left off with that. What could be better? First, let me welcome Drs. Grant and Bickett back to the show. Guys, thanks so much for coming back. Thanks. We're happy to be back. Pleasure to be here, Jed. Awesome. All right. So let's jump back in where we left off. We had talked about the preoperative and postoperative use of non-opioid adjuncts. Now we want to focus this episode on the intraoperative use. We can think of kind of medications that we use intraoperatively as both some that we give in bolus form, some that we give as drips, and then some, of course, we do both. So why don't we start with uh, things we might bolus. Let me ask you guys about magnesium. That's something that's included in a lot of our ERAS protocols. Um, what effect does magnesium have? Is there any downside? Should we be using it for everybody? Yeah, so magnesium is an interesting medication. So it does fall within the same class of medications, you know, so the NMD receptor um, modulators. And, uh, you know, magnesium has a number of different effects. And uh, probably most classically, some of your listeners are going to use this kind of in their obstetrics populations um, for things like preeclampsia management. And, and in conjunction with that, what, one, what they will mention is that you'll see things like motor retardation and weakness as a result of using that medication. But what we're really talking about in it, for its use in this class is much, much smaller doses and often in a bolus form. And most of the studies on this have suggested that somewhere in the neighborhood of 4 grams to even as much as 8 grams intraoperatively, either as an infusion over several hours or as a single medication bolus dose, has some efficacy, both to reduce the amount of opioids intraoperatively, but then subsequently the amount of opioids used in the immediate postoperative period as well. That seems to be a little bit of a shorter-acting medication than some of the other classes we've already talked about, um, but it does seem to have at least some efficacy. And one of the upsides of it is it's incredibly predictable from a dosing standpoint. It has a giant therapeutic window. So it's very, very, very difficult to overdose this medication. And it's incredibly cheap. So the idea that you can simply use this very quickly in an intraoperative setting is pretty appealing. How much, if any, do we need to take this into account in terms of our neuromuscular blockade dosing if we're giving magnesium? Yeah, so I think, I, I mean, I think it's probably more of an academic question than it is a true clinical question. Um, you know, academically, they'd say it potentiates your uh, neuromuscular blockade and you need to be thoughtful about the dosing strategies. Are I there would, other medicines that potentiate the blockade? 
I think that's for a, another podcast, another time. All of our general anesthetics do this, right? <laughs> I mean, it's like, name something that doesn't potentiate blockade, right? Right. So, and I, I think what you're really getting at here is that, um, yeah, I mean, I think it, at all points you need to be mindful of where you're standing in your neuromuscular blockade in general. Um, do I think this contributes? Probably. Do I think that it is a large enough contributor that needs to wholesale change the way that you approach this question? Not at all. So okay. good for a test question, but... Perhaps not as like, supremely relevant. Like a lot of things, I think it yes. fits in that category. Maybe not as clinically relevant. All right, so you could give these 4 to 8 grams as a bolus or as a drip. Is there any reason to do one or the other in terms of its effect, uh, opiate-sparing effect, or it doesn't matter? So, again, some of these some of these trials really didn't tease it out. So, there's uh, as, again, as far as I know, no head-to-head when it comes to the, the formal dosing strategy. This just happens to be the way that they've employed it. I'll tell you from a pragmatic standpoint, I like the idea of setting it up on a channel, letting it run in a reasonable dose over you know about a four-hour period, and then when it finishes, you take it off. So, um, you know, we use it in our cardiac population on every single case. I will say we also use it in part because of its antiarrhythmia benefits, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which, by the way, can also be subscribed to the rest of these kind of various large belly populations. We have no data that suggests that it may, you know, attenuate post-operative arrhythmia in those settings, but it certainly has its benefits in cardiac surgery. Yep. Great. All right. So we talked about its mechanism from an NMDA receptor antagonism standpoint, much like the dextromethorphan we already discussed. So the one that you guys already mentioned that has that people think of in that mechanism and in that role is ketamine. So let's talk about ketamine, uh, both as a potential bolus and drip. What, uh, what are the advantages of ketamine? Uh, ketamine is uh, amazing medication. I mean, you know, it, it really is a full-spectrum uh, drug in the armamentarium of the anesthesiologist. And so, you know, you can go from relatively low doses where um, it can just induce some sedative effects um, to higher doses where uh, we get uh, a little bit heavier sedation all the way to inducing general anesthesia with it. So we've got to remember, you know, here's a medication really along a continuum there, and so your dose selection for it is going to be particularly important. Uh, ketamine certainly can be opioid sparing in the different forms that we've already talked about, whether it's an IV bolus at the start of a case or running as a background infusion. And depending on your relative potencies of your other anesthetics, uh, the, the dose of that is going to be informed uh, largely by what other medications you're using. You know, um, kind of putting on our chronic pain hat for just a moment, we're seeing a, a large rise in terms of the use of ketamine infusions to treat some chronic pain conditions. And it's, it provides a lot of insight, even though these aren't quite folks who are in the operating room about some of the side effects that you want to make sure and mitigate or manage ahead of time. So, for example, when we're using ketamine infusions, what are the drawbacks to it besides it just you know, its great opioid-sparing properties? We have people who can experience nightmares, delusions, out-of-body experiences. It's a derivative of that uh, phenylcyclidine or PCP-type um, drug medication that's on the street. And so um, to help attenuate those, this is where a, a dose of the benzodiazepine, like the midazolam or something else, would uh, certainly help attenuate those effects those side effects that we see. And we do that both in the pain clinic, but it's also wise to think about that in the operating room as well. I will, I will provide one small caveat to that, and that is, you know, this is a dose-dependent phenomenon. Yeah. So, you know, to Mark's credit, he mentioned this, and, and one of the things that we often suggest, especially in the intraoperative phase, is that for patients who, you know, at the end of the surgery, the goal is to end the anesthetic, you may want to think about dosing your um, ketamine in such a way that r- reduces the impact. And so, one of the things we advocate for is something called a subhypnotic dosing mm-hmm. strategy. Um, you know, we talked about this when I was here before, and you know, one of the things that you could do here is is dial in. You know, I use milligrams per kilogram per hour. That ends up being somewhere around zero point one to 
about the upside of being about 0.3, so mm-hmm. somewhere in that window as a continuous infusion throughout the course of surgery. My experience has been that you tend to be able to extubate patients without some of these side effects that, that Mark's describing, yep. albeit you know, with or without the use of a benzodiazepine as kind of the modulator to, to some of those side effects. Right. And Mike, when you are going to use a, an infusion of ketamine at, let's say, 0.1 or 0.2 milligrams per kilogram per hour, which is about three mics per kilo per minute, do you... Uh, give a bolus dose at the beginning as a loading dose or not? So I think this is a really reasonable question. So, you know, in part, the real question is, what are you using your ketamine for? I would make the argument that if it's for analgesia specifically, I'm not convinced, at least at this point, that that bolus dose gives you greater efficacy. I do think that a bolus dose of ketamine can help you with other things. So one of the ways that it's really been studied is on whether or not you get more stable induction. I think anecdotally, I can say for sure that especially in some of the higher risk kind of cardiac conditions, ketamine has a really wonderful effect of providing the the anesthesia necessary um, without having some of the hemodynamic derangements that come along with with other induction agents. Mm -hmm. Um, One area where it was studied for a long time was in delirium. And so there's a a landmark article from 2017, a Lancet article, that suggested, uh, although we had hoped that a bolus dose of ketamine might actually improve things like delirium postoperatively, um, they did not find that to be the, the ultimate conclusion. They also said with that bolus dose, the bolus dose itself did not reduce pain subsequent to the surgery as well. So, so some of these findings are, are suggestive at the very least that unless you're using it for an alternative um, indication, that bolus dose maybe isn't necessary. Okay. So you could use the bolus dose if you wanted it to aid your induction, prevent some of the hemodynamic instability of, let's say, a large dose of propofol, but not necessary for the just purely uh, opiate sparing effects. I think that's right. And and one caveat to that is the moment you give that big dose, that big bolus dose, remember you are dealing with greater than hypnotic doses. And so as a result, some offsetting benzodiazepine or some other medication from that family makes sense. Right. Now, does propofol work? So uh, both being GABA uh, agonists in terms of attenuating those potential side effects of ketamine, or we don't know? So, again, I, I don't know that we know the answer to this question. Um, I think that those of us that use a fair amount of ketamine, particularly in the cardiac population, we tend to use propofol as well. Um, and, again, anecdotally, I don't know that I could give you a great idea that ketamine caused some of the same side effects we referred to already, mm-hmm. but I can't tell you for sure that it's an attenuator to those. Yep. Mark, any thoughts on that? Uh, you know, the last time I had had an interaction with a cardiac patient was quite some time ago. So I'm going to defer to Mike's expertise on this. Uh, you know, I, I do know that we, we at least have some guidelines that have come out professionally about the use of ketamine infusions, both um, in the operative period, but also if there are folks out there putting on their pain medicine hat uh, for treatment of chronic pain as well. And I believe in regional anesthesia and pain medicine in that journal recently, um, those guidelines have come out within the last 12 months. So those would be, you know, for those folks who are looking to learn more, an appropriate resource to look into. Great. All right. So ketamine, great option, a lot of benefits. Any one specific patient who you would not use even a low-dose subhypnotic dose of ketamine in? Probably I can't. Not. I can't think of an overwhelming contraindication. I will say that the patient groups that we see the most side effects in are the young males population. So young males, in particular, tend for whatever reason tend to have some of these side effects that Mark was referring to earlier. Yeah. So maybe be careful with the larger doses, or think about using some benzodiazepine with it. All right. How about IV NSAIDs, also known as Toradol or Ketorolac? Uh, is that something, I, I, in my experience, we often, this is an ongoing conversation with surgeons. Some uh, are very pro, many are extremely against. 
should we be using this? Uh, what role does do IV NSAIDs play in the intraoperative period? Yeah, I think uh, another exposure to an NSAID at an appropriate time interval can make a lot of sense. If you're in a case that's uh, been longer you know, than a few hours and you've dosed the NSAIDs uh, prior to the surgery in a PO fashion, at the conclusion of a case, it can make a lot of sense to include an IV dose uh, towards the end, um, in particular to help provide some analgesia after the case. You know, I think these concerns come up to what Mike had mentioned before about, uh, you know, issues with bleeding and coagulation that um, making sure to ensure hemostasis um, with patients. And really, when we look at the evidence that's out there, um, a lot of folks have pointed to this um, kind of preclinical, uh, either mouse models or rodent models of um, getting super therapeutic doses of NSAIDs and its impact that it has. But when we've tried to look clinically about rates of transfusion, rates of blood loss, and things like that, they've been fairly minimal. And, and I think many of us, for that reason, tend to advocate for uh, including this in the regimens uh, when, whenever possible. All right. And 15 milligrams, 30 milligrams, depends on age? I mean, I think this is one of those areas where you might say if a patient has no overt contraindications, I think an aggressive dose, something like 30 milligrams, is appropriate. And I, and I think the same qualifiers apply. If you've got a low GFR situation or an older patient, particularly if you're thinking about using this in a scheduled fashion, being more conservative and dropping down to 15 milligrams or even considering its omission would be very reasonable. Okay, great. And at least here we try to always have those conversations with the surgeons and maybe we try to do some education around the, the safety in terms of bleeding. I would say, again, you know, and I, I know that Mark and I keep bringing it back to our own disciplines a little bit. One important feature here is that for the use of NSAIDs in the cabbage population, there is an FDA contraindication to the use of NSAIDs. And, you know, there's a variety of reasons why that's come about, and you could debate ad nauseum whether or not the data is um, perfect in this regard. Um, but the bottom line is that that black box warning exists, so we often avoid the use of NSAIDs in that patient population. Although, again, for other open-heart surgeries, we don't. Okay. And are there other categories of surgery where it would be contraindicated or just that? Um, I'm not aware of another one where they've issued an, a formal warning to that, to that respect. Okay. All right, great. How about IV Tylenol? We talked about the benefits of acetaminophen, especially in combination with an NSAID. Uh, should we be giving a dose of IV Tylenol intraoperatively if a surgery goes long enough despite the cost? Is it worth it? So I think IV Tylenol is one of the largest and maybe most hotly debated concepts in the kind of enhanced recovery movement. And I think the reason for that is it's incredibly desirable as a medication because it's very easy to provide. You simply hang it and it's done. You are, there's almost no way to have a contraindication to an intravenous agent um, and oftentimes, patients perioperatively have periods of NPO, so you know, not able to take something by mouth. We've liberated those periods, and I think successfully so, and the ASA has done, I think, a really good job of helping us to understand that pills in and of themselves are not even part of that kind of dic uh, dictum. So long story short, there are attractive reasons for us to give IV Tylenol. The question really becomes, and I know Mark mentioned this earlier in this podcast, is whether or not it's necessary. Um, I think that some of the data would suggest that at least from a bioavailability standpoint and a therapeutic you know, threshold standpoint, the head-to-head -head comparison between a PO Tylenol and an IV, PO acetaminophen and a PO or IV Tylenol um, are, are pretty comparable. Um, 
So it's a little bit of a question mark as to whether it's necessary. I will say that there are going to be situations, and for me, something like the hepatobiliary population comes to mind, where patients are NPO for a longer stretch of time tends to be somewhere in the order of at least 24 hours. And if that's the case, I can understand why a consideration for an agent like this would be made. Great. All right. So, and then the last one in terms of a potential for an IV bolus dose uh, that, Mike, you brought up earlier and when we were just chatting is IV dexamethasone. Um, tell me a little about that. We think of it, obviously, as something we might give for to prevent post-op nausea and vomiting. What role, if any, does it have in pain? Yeah, so I'm going to put my chronic pain hat on for a second. Uh-oh. And I'm going to mention that, you know, steroids have been a mainstay of some of our chronic pain regimens for some time. Um, and, you know, again, Mark can speak a little bit better to this than I can. But one of the things that's come up recently is particularly when you're trying to promote the efficacy of your regional blocks, which, by the way, is a large area of discovery and probably a little beyond the scope of our podcast today. Um, what we've now noted, and there's been a handful of studies that have come out recently, including one large re- uh, systematic review that suggested that the use of an intravenous dexamethasone, um, not necessarily an additive to your injectate, can improve the efficacy of your blocks. And so one of the reasons we bring this up is because simply giving that IV dexamethasone may be um, efficacious in that regard. Prolong the duration of your block. I don't know that there's suggestion that it improves the density of the block, but certainly the duration of the block. Okay. Mark, anything to add to that? Yeah, I think uh, from our chronic pain uh, standpoint, you know, we've been relying on uh, injections of steroids for quite some time. Uh, in terms of trying to promote analgesia in various circumstances. And so um, whether it's a, a directly with the injectate um, or uh, systemically uh, added in, um, it's, it's w- another option, I think, to consider. And if, we, if someone was going to give this uh, intraoperatively as an IV dose to complement a block, would it be 4 milligrams or is there another dose? So the range varies. Um, uh, we tend to say that your maximum is somewhere around 10 milligrams, so somewhere in that 4 to 10 milligram window. You know, the majority of what was studied in that systematic review was in that kind of 8 milligram to 10 milligram swing. Okay. And any contraindications what we think about, obviously, steroids as causing elevations in blood sugar. Would you give uh, one of these doses to someone with diabetes, for example? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of it comes down to how your perioperative system is set up. I will say that, that the suggestion that it will that will worsen some of the risk factors around things like surgical site infection are mm-hmm. probably unfounded okay. at this point. But I will say that in patients where, um, you know, particularly the brittle diabetics or people who are in settings where it's very challenging to monitor and treat, um, you know, perioperative glucoses, um, those might be the patients that you would consider omission of this medication. Okay. And is there any reason to think that in the absence of a block, dexamethasone may have some opioid sparing effects, or we don't know that? So I think, again, the suggestion, and some of this data is much older, the suggestion is that, you know, some time ago there was some promise in this area, but I think more and more it has crept in, this idea of the side effects are probably a little bit more substantial than the potential benefits in this regard. So really, the bang for your buck here comes from potentiating some other adjunct that you've provided, namely the regional block. Great. So this whole conversation started, uh, Mike, as I'm sure you remember, when I got a listener question about Esmolol as an adjunct uh, to ERAS pathways, and that led to us deciding to do a whole a whole episode on adjuncts. But let's talk about Esmolol. Um, why might Esmolol, a beta blocker, uh, which obviously we use for heart rate control, very short acting, why would that play a role in opioid sparing uh, um, ERAS pathways? 
It's a great question, Mike. Why would esmolol help spare <laughs> spare opioids in this state? So, um, you know, esmolol has a lot of promise, um, and there are a variety of, again, uh, relatively early data, primarily has come out in the setting of orthopedic, mainly arthroscopic procedures. And what they've noted is that when you run a continuous infusion intraoperatively, that we see a much lower dose of opioid administration. And we, at least there's a suggestion that that carries over at least into the PACU postoperatively, whether or not that infusion is continued. If started in the postoperative setting, we also see something similar, that patients, at least in and of themselves, they voice lower pain scores, they tend to receive less opioids. What has somewhat come under fire is what is the true mechanism of this. Now, um, I'll leave it to Mark, who's been really good about mechanisms here, to maybe provide us a central role. But, you know, we now know that beta blockers in general have this kind of, you know, overarching pleiotrophic kind of um, improvement Things like reduction of inflammation, generally speaking, et cetera, et cetera. And the the predilection here is that the provision of Esmolol will, at the very least, reduce the onus to give opioids. We wrote an editorial here in response to um, a daring discourse from um, regional anesthesia and pain medicine that suggested that one of the concerns we have is that what we're really doing is masking pain when we give epi- sure. uh, esmolol. You, in other words, don't have the tachycardia that might make you decide, oh, the patient needs some opiate. Exactly. And so, you know, opioids traditionally are used in somewhat of a rescue fashion. In fact, that's really the, the number one way in which they're used. And if a patient doesn't exhibit those tachycardic signs when they're under general anesthesia, it's very challenging to know whether or not they're having pain. Um, I would say that this makes that a little bit more of a challenge. Does that mean that I think there is not a mechanism for esmolol and a promising one at that? Uh, No, I I actually think there may be a role here, but I also think it warrants an awful lot more discovery, similar to some of the other medications we mentioned previously, things like duloxetine and some of these other mood stabilizers. I think, again, to take a wholesale approach where you just simply move it over and put it into a bunch of different service lines and think you're you're making benefits, I think is is probably heavy-handed. Great. Mark, anything to add? Yeah, I, I would really underscore, I think, Mike's emphasis here about some of the reasons that patients may not receive more opioids on Esmolol. And, uh, you know, we're going to need kind of a, a pretty interesting study designed to then tease out this idea that, well, are we really just masking uh, some of the responses that anesthesiology providers would have when uh, desiring to give an opioid? And because they're just not there, they're just not receiving as much opioids. And um, in reality, they're doing all right. What catches my eye a little bit more is this data postoperatively, right, where, where folks uh, are recovering from anesthesia. They're able to voice their, uh, you know, pain levels and describe how they're doing, and esmol infusions in those settings have been suggested. But, you know, I still think uh, we need a little bit of a stronger evidence base here um, in terms of wholesale moving forward with applying esmolol infusions in everybody's PACU. Um, perhaps it will, will uh, pan out one way, but um, a very interesting, I think, questions to look forward to learning more about as uh, studies go on. I think one of the other things to mention here is that I think it's of a belief that because it's an ultra-fast fast on and ultra-fast off medication that there's very little risk associated with it. And although, uh, anecdotally speaking, I might agree with elements of that, I think it's um, important to remember that we now know that things like starting initiating a beta blockade on a patient in a perioperative setting who is um, who is not on a beta blocker carries risk. And so, um, I, again, I do I think that this is established in the literature around Esmolol? Very difficult to say because we have very little data in this regard. But I also don't think that it has 
also by proxy the same um, protective qualities that the initiation of a beta blockade or the continuation of a beta blockade may have in the perioperative setting. Sure. So I think some of those arguments are, again, a little bit early on. It's a little early on to be able to make those kinds of arguments. Great. This reminds me of a question that I think I get asked sometimes, I'm sure you do too, and I think it's interesting, which is if a patient is awake and they're saying they're in pain, we obviously want to treat that pain. Ideally with things that are not opiates, but however we're going to do it, we would like to reduce their pain. Under general anesthesia, we we don't pay, what does pain mean, right? So somebody is tachycardic with the absence of any other cause, we tend to think, oh, you know, they may need some some fentanyl. But do they? Is my question. Is there a is there a what what about the alternative which would be to say, all right, this patient isn't moving and they're, you know, they're not uh we don't think aware. So we could just, if we're worried about the tachycardia, we could give esmolol or metoprolol, or if they're tachycardic and hypertensive, we could give labetalol. Is there a reason to give opiate to a patient under general anesthesia when you could control the vital sign abnormalities another way? So I, I think your question really opens up a, a box of uh, uh, discussion that relates much more to about, okay, this pain transmission pathway sequence and kind of uh, what data do we have about the influence of uh, nociceptive input um, through the spinal cord and then up to the brain. And um, is it the same to say, well, look, if we just reduce the heart rate, that would be the same as actually um, having influences that interrupt that sequence of events that results in pain pain transmission um, up to the brain, albeit with general anesthesia, you have the decoupling of the consciousness, so you're not going to have conscious manifestations of pain there. And so uh, this discussion, I think, uh, makes me turn just a little bit to some of the data that we have, in particular about patients who have um, amputations that are done. And the notion that um, here with patients who have amputations, one of the uh, hallmark articles in the field was done um, perhaps 10 or 20 years ago with patients who presented for um, a leg amputation, and um, it was shown that their rate of preoperative pain control dramatically influences the rate of postoperative pain, and in particular, postoperative chronic pain. Um, And so in those settings, to me, uh, there is some suggestion that um, there is some need to uh, actually mitigate the central nervous system effects that happen with the uh, nociceptive input and the transmission along that way that would be missed by simply just responding to someone's reduction in heart rate. So again, perhaps a 60-second view into the window of kind of what we think about through pain mechanisms, but an important question nonetheless. Yeah, great. That's helpful. All right. Let's talk about IV lidocaine, something that's often listed in ERAS protocols, um, either along with or instead of ketamine. What do we know about IV lidocaine? Yeah, so I, I might make the argument that what most people do in this setting is if a patient is either not a candidate or has a contraindication or are unable to achieve some level of local anesthetic placement through an uh, indwelling catheter, that people could opt for the use of an intravenous lidocaine option. Um, you know, we recommend this in a number of our protocols. It actually tends to be one of the better studied um, pain, you know, analgesics that we have available to us. Um, again, does it, it works, you know, by modulating sodium channels um, and re- theoretically reducing some of those pain impulses. Um, it certainly has efficacy. Um, 
one of the downsides, obviously, is that the level of toxicity that comes with it is appreciable. And so you have to be very thoughtful about not only the amount of lidocaine that you give intravenous for this, but even subsequent uses of local anesthetic for things like local wound infiltration or subsequent regional anesthetics at the closure of cases and things of that nature. Yeah. Um, one, uh, one advantage of it is that you could use it intraoperatively, but then also carry it into the postoperative setting. And a number of centers, ours included, have actually put pathways together where you could run this as a continuous infusion on our floors. Mm-hmm. Again, the, the most important features of this are that you have a system that allows you to monitor for things like local anesthetic toxicities um, and, uh, and that you have pain services that can kind of manage those infusions. Great. And the dosing, Mike, what dose do you use? So we often recommend anywhere from 0.5 to 2.0 milligrams per kilo per hour. That's a, a reasonable starting dose for most patients. And most patients, because we tend to give lidocaine with propofol or right before propofol, are going to get effectively a loading dose of about 100 milligrams, That's at least right. adult patients. So you're going to get a 100 milligram uh, loading dose and then a an infusion at, like you said, between half, uh, 0.5 to 2 milligrams per kilogram per hour. That's correct. And, you know, I'd be remiss not to say also, similar to the magnesium conversation, that this also has antiarrhythmia benefits associated with it. Um, there are, I'm aware of a number of cardiac centers that have actually used this not only for antiarrhythmia benefits, but also for uh, analgesic benefits as well. It's all about the heart with you, Mike, isn't it? Absolutely. Well, I'll just turn and make it about the nerves and chronic pain here because I think with lidocaine, we certainly have some building evidence that uh, lidocaine infusions may end up actually helping to reduce persistent post-surgical pain. And we're not just talking about folks who are in the PACU and trying to head home. We're talking about months later. So um, there was a recent article in uh, the Journal of Pain by Bailey who did a meta-analysis that was looking at rates of chronic pain after IV lidocaine infusion and some, some data with the trials that they examined there of perhaps intermediate quality, suggesting that patients who are exposed to IV lidocaine infusions during their surgeries actually ended up having reduced rates of persistent post-surgical pain. Is it conclusive? I don't think we're just there yet, but uh, certainly an area of further inquiry, and it'll be interesting to see how that story unfolds. Great. All right. Um, I think that's fantastic, and uh, we generally think that this is opioid sparing, has, as you said, Mark, some post-operative effect. And that, Mike, as you mentioned, patients, uh, we really could leave this running and wake them up. This is not going to prevent a patient from waking up. Yeah, and I will say, you know, one of the implementation challenges here is that we are very lucky in large academic centers to have some of the um, uh, uh, faculty resources, expertise, systems set up to allow us to do this in a very comfortable way. It probably is a little bit more of a challenge to establish a post-operative running infusion in some of the kind of smaller community settings. Absolutely. And if you were running a TIVA, uh, ERAS protocol with propofol and ketamine, would you add lidocaine to it? Is there a, is it, or is it pick one, ketamine or lidocaine? No, so I think it's, it's very reasonable to add, you know, similar to what we've talked about with some of our medication bundling, it's, in, it's appropriate for you to consider multiple different mechanisms. Similar in this regard, I think running an anesthetic that's a balanced anesthetic that, you know, calls upon a number of these different infusions is, a, is an appropriate strategy. You know, I, the one caveat to that is it's not been studied. So all of these agents have been studied in isolation mm-hmm. and I think studied to at least intermediate level. But what's really challenging here is we have no idea whatsoever what happens when you bundle them together. And so with that caveat being there and what we only all we have at this point is anecdotal evidence for some of these medications in conjunction with one another. So as long as you take that ca- that very large caveat into play, I think it's a reasonable strategy. 
Great. All right, let's end by talking about dexmedetomidine. This is uh, something that, at least at our institution, since it became a little cheaper, has become very widely used. Should we be using this intraoperatively? What are the advantages and disadvantages? So I think if you were to ask the layperson, um, or, well, actually, if you were to ask a mainstream clinician at Johns Hopkins what Presidex can do, they would tell you that it could uh, clean their cars, it could pick up after their kids, um, it cures cancer. I mean, gen- genuinely, our predilection is that um, the use of dexmetomidine has totally changed the way that we perform anesthetics. I think that's probably not accurate. What I will say about um, dexmetomidine is that if used for the appropriate indication, it has really wonderful effects. And what we really want to focus on here is the potential analgesic effects. Again, a little early in the setting to be able to say that this is a truism, but I think in general we are starting to see suggestion that its use in the operating room may have some opioid-sparing characteristics, and then also its use postoperatively has similar effects. Is this similar to the Esmolol phenomenon in that, you know, you have a little bit less onus to provide those medications? Mm. It's very possible. But, you know, independent mechanisms aside, there is at least a clinical suggestion that this has a role. And I think it makes sense from a mechanistic standpoint. I mean, here, you know, with... Uh, the medication, we're really talking about alpha-2 agonism, mm-hmm. right? And uh, it's been shown um, through some of our colleagues, I think, now who are at the University of Michigan, you know, it's a useful adjunct to regional uh, nerve blocks um, and helps potentiate uh, the duration of nerve blocks when it's added to those, though that isn't necessarily routinely done at this point in time. And we also have other medications that work on the alpha-2 uh, receptor that um, can do similar things. So, for example, you know, it's in the same family with clonidine. Certainly, we don't use clonidine quite a bit because of the rebound hypertension that often happens, but um, that uh, kind of hits the same same type of receptor. And then the other medication that, that uses the same receptor that we sometimes employ in the chronic pain arena a little bit more often is a medication called tizanidine. And that's a PO medication that uh, can be shown to be opioid-sparing and um, before the FDA came out with one of the more recent uh, approved medications to treat opioid um, withdrawal symptoms, um, some regimens used some combination of either clonidine or tizanidine, and it was really this alpha-2 receptor that seems to play quite a bit, a bit of a role in terms of preventing the opioid withdrawal symptoms. So it makes sense, I think, in this case, that um, we would see opioid-sparing properties um, that are useful in the operative setting. I think one thing that you're you're not yet seeing, but I think it's just a matter of time, is it being written into f- kind of formal guidelines around things like perioperative care. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I think it's just a matter of time before we have enough data to suggest this probably makes sense. Um, we have fledgling examples of it being incorporated into individual local protocols, but as far as I know, no national guidelines that suggest it should be utilized at this point. Great. All right. And so if you're going to use it, what dose do you generally think of? Yeah, so uh, also a bit of a moving target. Um, You know, this has a really wide-ranging dose, um, and every patient is a little bit different from one another. So this is the one that's dosed a little bit um, counterintuitively. So this is anywhere from, at least our institution, 0.1 to 1.5 micrograms per kilogram per hour. Right. So that's a little bit different than the other kind of infusions that we think about. Um, And, you know, the way that we tend to do this, and I'll use us as an anecdotal example, is that we will simply start it at a modest dose, somewhere in the neighborhood of 0.5. And we will either just park it at that dose and just trust that we're providing at least some analgesic benefit throughout the course of that case, or titrate to effect if that patient's awake, alert, and voicing some pain concerns. Um, And I think either strategy is very reasonable. Great. 
Well, I think that's all really interesting and a lot of a lot of fantastic stuff to think about and uh, to keep our eye out for more data as it comes out. Some of this stuff is pretty well established and and certainly we use and, and anybody could use now. Other things, esmolol and uh, dextromethorphan and duloxetine, we'll keep our eye out and uh, and kind of see what comes. But really interesting stuff. Anything to add before we sign off, guys? Mike, it's really been a pleasure to be here with you today and really discuss this. I think you've really spoken to the heart of a lot of a lot of different issues as they relate to multimodal analgesia, and I, I just want to take this opportunity to thank you. I think it's important that when you have a, um, uh, somebody whose primary role is not in pain to have somebody here to check and balance him, and I thank you, Mark, for doing that for us today. Happy to do it anytime, Mike. Couldn't be happier to have the two of you here to check and balance each other and to provide incredibly expert commentary on this really important topic. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Jed. It's always a pleasure. Thanks, Jed. All right. Fantastic. I hope that was really useful. I found it really educational. These guys are great. If you have comments, please go to the website, ACRAC.com, where you can leave a comment that everyone can learn from. Let us know what you think about the intraoperative management and use of these non-opioid adjuncts. Also, if you're a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. Of course, if you are interested in supporting the making of the show, please go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show, even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge. It makes a big difference. We really appreciate it. Of course, you can also go to paypal.me slash ACRAC and make a donation anytime you feel like it. That is also greatly appreciated. To those who are already donors or patrons, thank you. It means a lot. All right, that is it for today. Thanks for listening. For the ACRAC Podcast and Doctors Bickett and Grant, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.